Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I promised you the last several weeks that we were going to come to the end of our study in 1 John, and today we are. We're going to land the plane, Lord willing. Um, And we're going to close by looking at just one last verse. This is the 30th sermon that we've done on 1 John. Um, You'll be encouraged to know I was... I was listening to a pastor who did over 60 messages on 1 John. So um, 30 doesn't sound so bad now, does it? But we are going to look here at uh, a final exhortation that is given by John. Last week, we looked at this wonderful verse, verse 20. As Christians, there are things that we know, things that we are assured of as believers. And here John says, we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us an understanding. What is this understanding? That we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We have been blessed by the grace of God through the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been blessed to know the true and the living God. As I said last week, this John is not politically correct. To say that we know there is only one true and living God and and we know him doesn't go well on Main Street. This is what John says. This is what we know as believers by the grace of God. And John, as he wraps up this book, he, he wraps it up the way he began it. And in chapter 1, he says that he had been with Christ. He had seen him. His hands had handled him. He had heard him. And he says, I'm writing to you concerning this one who is the word of life. And I'm writing to you so that you also may know him, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things I write to you so that your joy may be full. And pretty much this is what he says in verse 20, that we have been privileged to know God, have fellowship with him, with his son, and to have the joy of that relationship. Now, I gave you a homework assignment last week to talk about, I talked about some of the blessings that we receive as a result of our union with God, knowing the true and living God. I hope you were able to spend some time last week to look over and Consider some of those blessings in your own life. But what we find in 1 John, it begins this way, it ends this way, and what we find, everything in between, is showing us what it is like to have life in the sun. It's kind of like an Oreo cookie. You have the two uh, chocolate parts and the cream in the middle, and John is saying, you know, we have fellowship with God. We know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the beginning and the end. And in the middle, in the creamy part, it tells us what it is like to have life in the sun. That's the series title, Life in the Sun. What does it look like? And we've been considering that, that there is faith, faith in Christ, that there is, there is love, love for God and love for his people. And there is holiness. God's people are seeking to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And these are the marks of a believer, one who truly belongs to Christ, who have truly repented of their sins and have trusted him. These are the characteristics that will be manifest 
in their life. And so John says, this is the very reason that I'm writing to you, because I want you to know that if you believed in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have eternal life, that you have it. It is yours by God's grace. And I hope as we've come through this study that God has affirmed that to you. If you're a believer, that he's shown this is to be true of your life, that the fingerprints of God's grace are upon your life. But if not, it is my prayer yet that you will come to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the only Savior and friend of sinners. And we come today to a final exhortation that is given to us by John. This is the last verse, and John closes out his little epistle by saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, as we maybe read through the book of 1 John and we get to this point, we might think this is a strange and yet not so strange final exhortation. As we read this at first glance, it might seem a little strange to us, maybe a little bit of out, out of place. I mean, John has not talked about idols in his book, um, in his epistle, and it may seem a strange way to end this. After all, verse 20 was such a glorious verse that we know that we know the Son of, we know God, we know the true and the living God, and we are in him. This is kind of like a grand finale, you know, at a fireworks on Labor Day. Here is the finale of, uh, of, this, of this epistle, but Paul doesn't, or excuse me, John doesn't stop there. John goes on and he makes an exhortation. And it might seem strange to us, but as we look at the book as a whole and we consider John's immediate audience, it really is not. Because John had spoken about these people who had been in their church who were teaching another gospel. They were teaching a Christ that was not the Christ of scriptures. He was not the Jesus of the apostles. And so John is warning them, don't listen to false teachers. Don't be driven away to idols. Keep a watch over your heart. Keep yourselves from idols. And John's writing to these, and he calls them as little children. He's done that probably three or four times in this epistle. My little children. John has a great love for them, a great concern for them. And he does not want them to be drawn away to idols. And then when we think about John's broader audience, which would be us and anyone who would read his epistle, we recognize that John is writing to us as well. John is writing this command to keep yourself from idols to Christians. He's not writing to pagans. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to his audience in the first century, but he, in a very real sense, is writing to us as well. Keep yourselves from idols. So this is not irrelevant for us, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But as we think about this idea of idolatry, of idols, just maybe a definition that I've put together, and it's this, that an idol is anything that occupies the place of ultimate devotion, which only the God of Scripture deserves. It is giving devotion to something other than God, ultimate devotion other than 
the true and the living God. Now, it's good to be a devoted employee. It's good to be a devoted spouse. It's good to be a devoted friend. But here we are talking about ultimate devotion. What has control of our heart, of our life, which motivates us? And the Bible is very clear that we are to give ultimate devotion to God and to God alone. We hear these words in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus picks up on this when he is asked in Matthew 22. He's asked by a lawyer of the Pharisees, well, what is the greatest commandment? And he was coming to test Jesus, but he gave him the answer. The greatest commandment is this, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment. And so we hear Paul saying things like this, that as a Christian, whatever you eat or drink, do all what? To the glory of God. Even in the most mundane things of life, We are to live with this perspective that we are to live for the glory and the honor of God. That he is to have preeminence in our hearts. But I'm afraid that sometimes when we think about this, the greatest commandment, we may read it the way it is in scriptures, but maybe in our hearts we're saying something like this. You shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart some of your soul, some of your strength, some of your mind. Don't get too fanatical. Give some devotion to him, but not all your heart. And as we come this morning to this this text, I think it is appropriate for us as well. So, Here is this call that is given to us to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. May I say this as we think about that, this greatest commandment? This is why you and I need a Savior. Because left to ourselves, we we don't do this. Paul says that by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this commandment condemns every one of us because we do not love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. As fallen sons of Adam, we, uh, we love ourselves, don't we? Our God is our belly. We live for ourselves, And this is why you and I need a Savior, a Redeemer, because this one sin condemns us. And so we need a Savior. And our salvation, thankfully, is rooted in Christ, who loved God with all of his heart, soul, and strength. He said, I delight to do the will of my Father. My food, my food, what energizes me in my life is to do the will of my Father. And I've come to do it. And that is our hope. It is our hope in Christ 
the one who perfectly obeyed the law of God. And we put our trust in him, and as we put our trust in him, he gives us his righteousness. And so God sees us as united to Christ. He sees us as having lived the life that Christ lived. And Christ, and at the cross, he gave his life to pay for our sin among them, that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. So that is the root and the basis of our salvation. But in sanctification, God is making this to be more and more true about us. That we will love him with all of our heart and soul and strength. Sometimes it's two steps forward. Sometimes it's one step backwards. But God is at work to sanctify us and to make us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And to be devoted to God above everything else that there are no rivals for his love in our heart. And so this is a fitting exhortation as John concludes, negatively keep yourself from idols, positively love God supremely above all else. And this is a most needful exhortation for us, I think for us today. And just for a number of reasons. First of all, because idolatry is explicitly forbidden by God. This is the first commandment that is given in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments, where we are told there, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of bondage. And he he had done that for his people that he had chosen. He had brought them out of bondage. And now this first commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other idols before me. Nothing that takes ultimate devotion apart from me. You are to love me with all your heart and with all your soul. And so this this idolatry is something that God forbids. And we see this over and over, especially In the Old Testament, where God is calling Israel to repent of their idolatry, their desire to go back to to follow the pagan gods around them. And so there is a call that is given to them. And this is Israel's greatest sin in the Old Testament. It was the sin of idolatry. Secondly, because idolatry robs God of his glory for which he is jealous. God is jealous for his glory. He is jealous that his name is not defamed in any way. And so we read in Isaiah over and over again, I am the Lord and there is no other. This is the message that he's communicating to his people. I am the Lord, there is no other. And then we read in Isaiah 42, 8, these words, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory, my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Exodus thirty-four fourteen. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God will not share his glory with something that is made an image or a shrine. He will not share his glory with another person. We read in Acts 12 of Herod, King Herod. And on this particular day, Herod came out and sat on his throne. He had his royal uh, garments on. And uh, 
the people were crying out. And they said, the voice of a God, the voice of God, and not of a man. Now, I think they were probably trying to flatter him. But nonetheless, what we find happening is then it says, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God. He received glory for himself as if he were God. He did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Yuck. Hard to picture that. But here is this man who, who was the glorification of the worm, this man Herod. And he is now eaten with worms because he did not give glory to God. We find John in the book of Revelation when people are falling down as a word to, to, to give honor to him. He says, no, I'm just a man. And Paul, and, uh, Paul did that as well. God is jealous for his glory. And when there is idolatry of any kind, it robs him of the glory that is due to his name. And he's jealous for this. Just as in a marriage, we ought to be jealous for the love of our partner, our spouse. We want them to love us. We're jealous for that and we guard that. And God is the same way. He is jealous for his glory. And this is good for us. That God is jealous for his own glory is going to be for our benefit. Because the more that we get to know him and who he is, it is for our blessing. But when his name is watered down, when he becomes insignificant, then we are hurt by that. So God is jealous for his glory. I have another account in Daniel 5 of Daniel with Belshazzar. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and he did not humble his heart as his father did. And we read these words as there was this drunken party that was going on, and they brought the vessels that had been taken from the temple, and they're drinking wine, and they're getting drunk. And it says this. This is Daniel speaking to him. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Your very breath comes from this God. And you did not humble yourself as your father did. You remember that he's weighed in the scales and he's found wanting. The judgment of God is to come upon him but he did not give glory to God. Thirdly, we see that because we need this reminder, because idolatry may not be what you or I think it is sometimes. Often, as a Christian, we might read this verse in 1 John, and it says, children, keep yourselves from idols. And what immediately comes to our mind is we think of some Buddhist temple somewhere on the other side of the world, and people bowing down to a shrine that is an idol that they have made, and we think that's idolatry, and it is. We think of things that are made of gold and silver. Psalm 135, 15 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And so often we can think about idols in that sense, that they are shrines, they are temples that have um, 
gods within them and, and people bowed down to them, which was very common in the world in which John lived in the Roman uh, Empire. And we might think to us to ourselves, well, I don't do that. This verse doesn't really apply to me. But as we look at this, it's more than just bowing down to an image. In the context of 1 John, there were those who had come into the church and were teaching another Jesus. There wasn't an image that they brought, but there was a mental image that they were conveying and saying this is the the true God and we know him by special knowledge, but this Jesus, he's not the son of God. And they, they demean the person and the work of Jesus. One commentator said, John warns his readers to be on their guard, not for material images or idols. Rather, they are false conceptions of God. Any conception of him that is at variance with his self-revelation in Christ is an idol. Hence, says John, since you have received the truth, have nothing to do with counterfeits. Beware of imitations and refuse all substitutes. So here are these false teachers that had rejected the Christ that had been presented by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had rejected his work, his atoning work. And now this was the God that they were peddling, which was an idol. This was not a God. This was not the true God. And uh, as we think about that, we can think of world religions, we can think of cults, that all all of these things are promoting a God that is not a God. It is an idol. And you know, even as Christians, we need to be careful because we can have wrong conceptions about who God is. A lot of times you'll hear people say things like, well, I like to think of God like this. And really what they are doing is they are forming an image of God and making him after their own thoughts. We are to be subject to the revelation that God has given to us in his word. And we need to receive the totality of that revelation that he has given to us. And sometimes you'll hear people say like this, well, I believe the Bible, but there are some things that that I don't like, things that it says that I'm troubled by, and I, I just really can't accept that. Well, that is, again, to make God in our own image, in our own likeness, in our own thoughts. And we have to be careful about that. We must be submissive to the word of God. John Calvin said this. He said, the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. This is where idols come from. It comes from the human heart. As fallen sons of Adam, we... We crank out all kinds of idols that we worship that are not the true and the living God. Stephen Charnock said this, Idolatry is when we act as if something below God could make us happy without God, or that God cannot make us happy with the addition of something else. God is not enough. He is not our he is, he is not, we're not fully devoted to him and who he is. There is something else that is necessary for my well-being. And uh, so this is idolatry. 
So it's not just pagan hedonists, as we read in Romans 1, that worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. But as Christians, we need to be aware that there are things that can subtly creep into our hearts that have a place of inordinate affection and love, and it takes the place of loving God with all of our heart and soul and strength. So it's not just bowing down to an idol, bowing down to something made of gold and silver. It is anything that comes out of our heart that we ultimately are devoted to more than we are to God. Turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. And we see here that as we think about idolatry, it is more than just gold images. Colossians 3 and verse 5. Therefore, Paul says, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and then notice this, right among this list of sexual sins and perversions, and covetousness, which is what? Paul says it's idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. I'm not happy. I'm not content. I want what someone else has. And this is one of the Ten Commandments as well. Do not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his ox, his donkey, anything that he has. When we are coveting, we are desiring something that does not belong to us. There is this inordinate desire that we have. And this is idolatry. I must have it. It must be something that will make me happy, and I have to give myself to it. So there is a sense of devotion to it and love for it. And as John Calvin said, we can make an idol out of anything. And so we can make an idol even out of good things, lawful things. We can make an idol out of the house that we want to live in or the house that we want to have. We can make an idol of our education, our job. We can make an idol of money, wanting more and more and more. And this is what drives me. This is what moves me. This is what motivates me. I must get more and more and more. And this is what floats my boat, you might say. This is what I live for. This is what I give myself to. I'm dedicated to my job or whatever it is. And and this is what... I live for. And there are all kinds of things. It can be clothes. It can be hobbies. It can be sports. Even good and lawful things can become an idol to us. They take our hearts. They take our devotion. They take our time, our energy, our money, our affections that ultimately ought to go to God as our ultimate devotion. But we are serving things made by hands. And this is idolatry. And my heart, left to itself, is an idol factory. That's what it'll do. And so John says, keep yourselves from 
idols. I'm closing because we need this exhortation because idolatry is, it's like a broken cistern. We don't have a lot of cisterns anymore. Maybe some people do, but a cistern is where you collect rainwater in a big tank to use to sustain your life. And turn, if you will, to one other passage, Jeremiah chapter 2. This is where this picture comes from as the Lord addresses the people of Israel for their sin and their idolatry. They often were going a-whoring after other gods, and so it is in this context. Jeremiah 2, verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me? They have, that they have gone far from me. They have followed idols, and they have become idolaters. Was there something lacking in me? And they have gone to follow after these idols that are no gods at all. And then drop down to verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Here's the first. They have forsaken me. And who is this God that they have forsaken? The God of Israel. He is described as a fountain of living waters. So this is their first great sin. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. The second is this. They have gone and they have hewn or carved out of the stone for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see the picture here? Here is God who is described as this artesian well of fresh living water. Water that is abundant and overflowing. And they have forsaken this artesian well, and they've gone and they've hewn out for themselves in their idolatry, seeking after other gods, other things to find satisfaction in and to to meet their needs. And they have hewn out cisterns, and they're broken, and they can hold no water. They can provide no life, no sustaining life. They cannot satisfy. And here John is saying this. This one true God that we know who Jesus Christ has given us an understanding of, don't ever turn away from him. Don't ever turn away to idols that will never, ever satisfy this idolatry is, is sin. It's an abomination to the Lord. In Isaiah or Psalm 96, verse 5, it says this, For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made heaven and earth. There are about half a dozen words in the Old Testament to speak about this idea of idols or idolatry. And this word here for idol is a word that means empty. It means worthless. 
It's vanity. It has no value. We could say it is good for nothing. Here are these gods that Israel was chasing after, but it's a vapor. There is no life there. There is no value there. Do you remember the account in the Old Testament where the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant of Israel and they brought it back to their temple where they had their god Dagon and they took the Ark of the Covenant in there and they placed it next to their god Dagon. Well, the next day when they come in, here is Dagon fallen on his face, his hands broken off, and it fell right before the Ark of the Covenant. I love this picture, this scene. And do you know what they do? They prop him back up and kind of wire him up so he'll stand up again. How ludicrous. Here is this God of the Philistines who is no God at all. He's but a vapor. And they send the ark back to Israel. They don't want to have anything to do with this. And so it is with the gods of this world. The gods of our own making. They cannot satisfy. They cannot fulfill. And what a great sin to turn from the true and the living God to anything else that we think will bring us satisfaction and joy and life. John says, I've given to you this truth of the true and the living God. Do not turn away from him. Do not turn to anything else. Do not give your heart to anything else. Love him and love him above all else that he may control your life. A lot of times, again, as Christians, these are things that can subtly slip into our life, and we maybe sometimes are not even aware of it, and John is sending a warning to us. Keep watch. This is a warning. Keep watch. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't allow anything to creep into your heart that takes away the devotion that only God deserves. And that is for our well-being, isn't it? So John is writing to him as his little children in the faith. I love you. I don't want you to be taken away from this, the greatest and the best of all beings, who is a fountain of living water. Find your satisfaction in him and in him alone and ultimately. Sometimes you will hear yourself or maybe someone else say something like this. I feel just so empty. I feel empty. I think if you would dig down and you would look into their life, you would find there's an idol there that cannot satisfy them. They put all their hope and all their trust in this that they think will bring them great enjoyment and satisfaction. And it's vain. It's empty. And it does not satisfy So here's the call that is given to come back to the one who is the fountain of living water and find life and fullness in him and in him alone. So as we close this morning, is there maybe as we think about this, as we look into our own heart, is there something that has taken place in my heart that controls me and it's not the true and the living God? It is 
taking all my attention, my affections, my money, my time. And I'm really devoted to that and not to the true and the living God. Well, may we repent of that today. May God, may we think about that today. Is there anything in my heart that is like that? And maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Christ and your idols and your concerns are the things just of this world and yourself. Well, that's idolatry. And Revelation 22 tells us that on the last day, in the day of judgment, in the, in the judgment of God, he will judge all sexual immorality, all those who lie. And among the list is those who are idolaters. Maybe not bowing down to gold and silver, but bowing down to that which they think will make them happy and find joy. And I would point you to Christ today. He's the savior of idolaters. Run to him, turn to him. Turn from your idols and turn to Christ and live in him. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God, to enjoy him. God, by his grace, enable us that we would make good progress in doing that. I invite you as we close this morning to take your insert. And we want to sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. And I pray that this will become more and more true of us in our lives. That we will glory in this Redeemer who has purchased us. And that it will become more and more true of us that we will have longings for no one else but him. Let's stand together as we sing.
May God make this more and more true of us, that I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, and my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied with him alone. May he make that to be true of all of us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. You are dismissed.